This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and our full catalog of shows is podcasted wherever you get yours. So sign up for our downloads and be sure to follow the show on the channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as my handle, at Laura Zarrow. So we all know the pandemic has made things harder than ever, especially for women. We're trying to manage paid jobs while doing the unpaid labor of managing the household, teaching and caring for kids, and increasingly caring for aging parents all at the same time. This has forced record numbers of women to leave the workforce. And for those who remain, relationships with our partners, our employers, and even our own sanity is being increasingly stressed every single day. My guest today is all about creating solutions to those problems, whether it's in teaching women new ways to share the load at home or tackling the care crisis that's facing the country as a whole. Eve Rodsky is the author of the best-selling book, Fair Play, a game-changing solution for when you have too much to do and more life to live, and founder of the Philanthropy Advisory Group. Eve, welcome to Women at Work. Laura, I'm so excited to be here. Um, I love your show, and I... I mean, these conversations couldn't be more timely. So thank you for sharing yourself with the world. <laughs> My, the gratitude's absolutely returned, Eve. So I want to probe a little bit into how you went from becoming a philanthropic advisor to an author and now kind of activist in many ways. <laughs> so give me a little bit of your story. How did this happen? Thank you for letting me tell that a little bit. Um, Journey Quest did not out to be a gendered division of labor expert. Um, I never took a women's studies class, even in college. I um, am a lawyer. I am an organizational management specialist. Um, I do all my CLE uh, work in negotiations and mediation. Um, my day job, as you said, I work for clients that look like the HBO show Succession and everyone should feel bad for me because, you know, if you've seen that show, it's, it's hard work. Um, I think the advisors and even happens to them. I haven't seen it in a while, but um, it's, it, so for me, this was very personal. I think, Laura, they often call um, research me search. Mm -hmm. And really this started with a text my husband sent me um, nine years ago now that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. Tell me more. <laughs> So, um, you know, I think we can all picture the scene because it reminds me of what's happening now, right? We had, I had a breast pump and a diaper bag in the passenger seat of my car. I had gifts for a newborn baby to return in the back seat of my car because I was barely holding on to my job. I just had my second son. Um, I had a client contract in my lap because I had decided to become a case of the 1099. So, and women at work, I really think that's an important thing to talk about that a lot of us, uh, we really value flexibility. And so that comes at such a premium. The workplace extracts it from us like blood. And I'm, I'm calling out um, law firms, especially like shame mm -hmm. on you for creating two tiered classes of partners and of counsel. Um, it happens everywhere, right? That they extract blood for flexibility. 
So for me, I, I, I left, I was forced out. I use words like forced out now, not dropped out or left um, or leaning out. I draw, I for, I was forced out. I was pushed out with a big ass hand on my back. <laughs> okay. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that, about the psychological safety, about why I felt forced out. But that day, that day on the side of the road, I had a client contract in my lap. I was trying to mark up the contract because I had started my own firm in, like I said, this false idea that it would somehow give me more flexibility and time. Um, but it just gave me invoicing and stress and having to now get my own clients and I lost my 401k. But in the midst of all that, my husband and I was racing to get my son. The reason I was in the car because I was racing to get my son at his toddler transition program, Laura, which in America, um, we pay for childcare here under five right. and um, it lasts 10 minutes <laughs> if you're lucky to get it. And so I was racing to get my son and in the midst of all this, Seth decided to send me a text that said, I'm surprised you didn't get blueberries. And, um, you know, I, I'm from New York, but I live in LA. So to pull over and cry over something like this meant it was obviously something way more important than, than yes. this blueberries text. And for me, it was obviously enraged that he thought I was the fulfiller of his smoothie needs. <laughs> but really, um, the bigger issues was, the bigger issue for me were, were two things. One, it was this idea that I did not have, it was starting the realization, it was starting the realization that I did not have the career marriage combo I thought I was going to have. And more importantly, I had become the default. I call them fair play the she fault, but this applies to same sex marriages as well. The she fault for literally every single household and domestic task for my family. And back to the gender studies, that was a statistic I didn't know I was living, Laura, that I do two thirds or more of what it takes to run a home. I did not know I was living a statistic, but that was the quest that um, I began after that day, nine years ago to understand what was happening to me. And that's sort of how I got here, but it was, it was a long quest, but it started that day. It started that day. There's so much packed in there. I want to pull some of it apart. So like that image that you paint is just so real to me. I so lived it where you're working full time. It sounds like in your case, you have two kids. Is that right? I, I have three now, but at that point I had it was two because you were I, breastfeeding. I -old, yes. I had a three-year-old and I had a baby that was born in the summer. And this was um, in the late fall. So if, I, if I've got this right, like to reinforce this picture, um, you're struggling at work, struggling. trying to sort out what's going to be sustainable, achievable place you want to be that wants you to be you there. Yeah. That's zone hole issue. Then you're like, it's, we've called it the, like the mother juggle, you know, where it's like, you're just trying to get everywhere on time. There's not enough time in the day and you're breastfeeding, which also equals to me that you're just freaking exhausted. Yeah. And in the moment that like, you're trying to handle all of this, then there's no blueberries. Mm -hmm. And that what that suggests about not being seen and not being understood. Is that why you were worrying about your marriage? Well, I think I really, I w that day, I think I had the cliche, Laura, of thinking my marriage is going to end. I really did. I, I honestly felt like um, exactly not feeling so hurt and understood and also feeling like th this expectation, the blame that somehow um, without talking about these things that they were on my plate. Um, it felt so cliche, I think, because, you know, if my marriage is going to end, Laura, it would be an affair with an NFL player. Right, like, like do it right. 
that's how my marriage is going to end. I like scripted that out. Like, and, or like, you know, some dramatic fight in the Caribbean. I'd be really beautifully tan. My hair would be flowing. Um, there was another man in the picture, right? I did not, you know, expect these small details to create the biggest problems. And I think, and, 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 I, yes. cause it sounds kind of princely, like not to malign your husband, no, but totally. like, where are my blueberries? Totally. It's like, totally. like, like, and also privileged. Like, yes. why should I be complaining? I have a great husband at home. You know, he's quote unquote better than the last generation. So what if he just is asking you to get something from the grocery list, right? There was so much shame and being upset about it. There's a lot to unpack, but I also think the other thing that was so dangerous was recognizing that the home presents so small. So in the workplace even, and I've heard, I think you're a beautiful host and I've heard um, your episodes. And even when you Thank talk you. about other, to other um, guests, you know, sort of about workplace, even microaggressions or office housework, you sort of can see it right away. Oh, I'm the one being asked to order the birthday cake, or right. um, I feel like I'm not being included in a Zoom meeting. Like you can feel it and articulate it better, but the home, we're not conditioned to complain. We're not conditioned to use our voice. And so um, you honestly think you're divorcing over blueberries or a man in white plains, this major CEO I interviewed for Fair Play, he told me his divorce was over a glue stick. Right. And, and so that's the problem. It's presents so small. We don't realize that we're actually hitting real systemic issues here. And that's why I've become an activist. I think I've become an activist because I thought, yes, I could solve the issues in my own home. And, I'll, and Fair Play is really a solution for the individual couple um, or a partnership or a single mom with a kid. It helps you make treat your home as your most important organization. And we'll talk about that. But the reason I became an activist was because I realized like this is the last frontier of feminism. And ironically, mm -hmm. it's in the place closest to us. And, um, and it's really never been talked about because we think it's an individual issue. And it's interesting, Eve, that you're experiencing this. Um, I'm older than you are. Um, and I grew up in a generation where we actually thought, um, okay, our moms dealt with this for us and it should be different. My daughter is now college aged and I experienced this all through my marriage. You're younger than I am. You're experiencing it all through your marriage. And if I read your bio correctly, you were raised by a single working mom. Why Correct. does this keep replicating itself? Why yeah. is it that, that generation after generation, while we're fighting to make change out there, this dynamic doesn't change? Same shit, different decade. And it's, it, and that is the activism in me. I, I said, you know, I'm the ghost of Christmas future, Laura. Um, <laughs> so are you <laughs> uh, in a lot of ways with your beautiful advocacy, the work you do on a daily basis, right? Work-life integration is advocacy. And, um, and I think, um, and, and, and it will lead to more women in, in leadership positions, which I believe- That's what will we hope. Climate change and will help solve the refugee crisis and other things that I really care about on a, on a global level. Um, but ultimately, like you said, it's same shit, different decade. And I really truly believe it's because, um, because we haven't hit the root issue yet. Yeah. So, so that's I, what I'm trying to get at the root issue. And, and that's, and I, I do address that in, in fair play. So as I was going through the book, um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with it, um, it, Eve's constructed this marvelous, actually quite fun system for how to navigate and negotiate how home works so that it works for everybody with, and there's a hundred playing cards 
four suits, just like in a regular deck. And I loved that there were 10 wild cards, two what you called unicorn cards, one for each of you for the thing that makes you special. Um, and when I went through it, um, I was kind of first shocked and then grateful because I looked at it through the lens of my first marriage. And I realized that out of the hundred cards, I probably regularly carried 90 of them. And in my- I don't know, that makes me start tearing up. It, I don't know why, was, I can't, every woman that to me, it just immediately triggers like an emotional reaction. I don't know why. And it was so awful hard. and complicated. And we would fight for us. It was about like, I thought we were gonna get divorced first over who took out the garbage. And yeah. um, in my new relationship now, granted, I have a marvelous partner. He's a grown man. He's been through this once and brings a lot of wisdom and kindness. And he's just awesome. But I looked at it through that lens and I'm like, wow, A, we're not raising children together because of the stage of life we're at, but we share almost all the cards. And it was, it's a totally different paradigm. But as I got deeper into the book, I realized it's not just about deciding who does what. Like I, if I had had your book, I don't think it would have saved my no, marriage. No, probably not. Because we weren't aligned on core values. Exactly. And I love that you brought us, it's like, and that issue of what our core values is so important, but I don't think we ever talk about it, which is why we think we're getting divorced over glue sticks. Yes. Well, that's what I love your work. And I love Stu Friedman's work. I love Warden and one day I'll <laughs> hopefully join you there. But I think it's so important because what I was trying to do is take, you know, who came before me, honor your work, honor Stu's work, honor people who have uh, talked about leadership and values, right? And say, if we treat our home as our most important organization, we're going to bring um, respect and rigor to the home. But the problem is there's two, there's one big thing we don't align on that has to be aligned on first. And then we, what fair play does is allows you to have buy-in, like you said, around core values, because as you see, I'm still triggered by women telling me they hold 90 cards. And no, that is I'm why so I'm an touched, activist. Eve. But it really triggered me. It's very, because I think it does, like you said, I will say one thing before I talk to you about the one thing that we're not aligned on, um, the one big value. But the first thing I want to just say is I want to honor that the privilege of recognizing this was bigger than me, Laura, was recognizing that um, I had two reasons why this shouldn't have happened to me. Like you said, I was acutely aware of being a parental child, as psychologists have called me, being my mother's partner. Mm -hmm. um, starting at seven, eight, nine, my mother uh, really wanted tenure at the at, as a professor of social work. Social work is not high paid, but she really wanted to be a professor. That's her dream. That's her unicorn space that we talked about. And so she had to take the night classes. So often if she couldn't find a babysitter, um, I was putting my disabled brother to bed, right? So there, so I was her partner. Eviction notice was, would come. I would say to her, let's pay our bills, especially the phone bill, because I was a teenager and I <laughs> wanted to use the phone. Um, so I, I, I knew what it looked like to have one person do it all. And on top of it, as we said earlier, I'm literally trained to use my voice. This is right. what I, my professional training is in difficult conversations. Thank you, Doug Stone and all the Harvard negotiation. <laughs> yes. Projects. And also but like you and Stu and all the people who talk about leadership and communication. I'm trained to use my voice. I've read every book on this, um, every workshop, you know, I, and so if I couldn't still use my voice in my home and I had all these privileges, I felt like I really had to dig in and this was probably happening to other women. And so that was, and then the last thing I will say about what you said about values 
the core finding of fair play, Laura, was we are not aligned as a society on how we view women's time. That's it. Clearly. So Eve, this core thing, it's so amazing. You didn't, and, and unlike many of us, granted you lived in America, you consumed the same media, you lived in New York, you saw families around you, but in your own household, you weren't modeling your parents' behavior. Nope. How nope. did you wind up in that trap? Exactly. I was not modeling my parents' behavior. I actually saw, like I said, a, an empowered woman who was, you know, quote unquote, doing it all, having it all to do it all, which we're all going to burn that, that <laughs> sentence. But, um, but I think what was, what, what was, that was what was so crazy to me that it didn't matter. It, it was very interesting. Um, no matter the walk of life, the culture, I, I interviewed people from Japan, from mainland China, from Hong Kong. Don't get me started about Hong Kong and the labor issues with women of color. Um, uh, but America, the UK, Australia, yes, a lot of developed nations, of course, um, Israel, but it was the same. And I was like, what is happening here, right? It, it just kept, I, I kept having the same patterns in my moleskins. And, you know, I'm not a sociologist by training, but but there's something economics about is my training law is my training. Yes. And so it, I'm used to, even in the law, you know, taking thorny issues and, and, and recognizing the presenting problem is not the real problem. And so that's as a mediator, that's what, a lawyer. That's what we're always taught to do, right? The presenting problem is usually not the real problem. And so getting behind it, what I recognize in all cultures, all cultures, we treat women's time as if it's infinite, like sand. And we treat men's time as if it's finite, like diamonds. Oh my God. And it's such it. a potent and beautiful and kind of disturbing simile, especially because, you know, sand is like one step away from being dirt. It's under our feet. We take it for granted. It, it's worth nothing. Worth nothing. Unless you don't have it. Um, and diamonds are a precious and rare resource to be respected and cherished. So when you realized this, how did you start to, like, I imagine it's like one of those montages, like in Charade, one of my favorite old movies, where all of a sudden the main character starts to put it together and figure out, you know, what's unlocking the mystery. How much what, did this resonate with your own sense of self-worth? And how did it connect to how you started to see the way society treats women? By the way, you're amazing. I want you to take you on the road. <laughs> I'm going to take you on the road everywhere. You're just an amazing interviewer. Um, yeah, exactly. That what you just said, it was Kaiser Soze. Like, I don't know if you remember unusual suspects, but I remember like the montage at the end when the detective starts putting up all those pictures and he sees, you know, what's happening and, and who it is. It, it felt like that for me. Um, and I remember, I'll tell you where it all unraveled, where I had my Kaiser Soze moment. It was in the office of a neuroscientist. Um, and it was, well, so I knew, right? So when I got to that neuroscientist office, this was, you know, what, five, six years ago now, um, before, obviously before COVID when we can go to offices, but you know, white man, a lab coat, he, he works um, on the developing brain. So I remember I, up to that point, I had, I had started to notice that, you know, obviously time is not valued in the workplace, right? That I started reading studies that if women enter a male profession, the salaries automatically um, go down. Mm -hmm. We know domestic workers, uh, wage workers, tipping, it's rooted in slavery and that women were often uh, doing this work, uh, um, women of color, uh, not in the GDP. You know, So I started to like recognize that there was a problem with how we were valuing women's time in the workplace. 
But then what started happening, Laura, was I started to hear things from women and I would label it with this weird little C-I-Y-O-O and I would circle it. And then I went back to my Kaiser Soze notes and I kept seeing C-I-Y-O-O everywhere. And what that meant was complicit in your own oppression. Wow. Complicit okay. in your own oppression. It's when I started to hear, when I asked women, why are you the ones picking up the phone call from the school? These are the three C-I-Y-O-O statements I would hear. It was, my job is more flexible. And then I would hear it. And then the study showed me that if a woman was a doctor, and this is heterosis gender right now, right. and a man was a, a, uh, a lawyer, the woman's job was more flexible. If the woman was a lawyer, the, doc, the, guy was, the man was a doctor, her job was more flexible, right? Even flexible. though the irony is that if we try and exercise that flexibility at work, more often than not, women are penalized. Totally. Whereas if men try and exercise the flexibility, they are increasingly praised. Correct. And they, they're, they're, it's nor, becomes normalized. I mean, obviously, if they try to take real chunks, we, we often see that sometimes they're penalized. But the flexibility, the um, my husband makes more money than me. Mm -hmm. uh, argument came up a lot. Well, of course I do more domestic work because my husband provides. Okay. Well, I started to realize how messed up that argument was because that would mean Laura, because I chose philanthropy and my husband chose private equity that I would be relegated to holding all of the domestic labor for my family forever. As if it, and as if like, that's where that concept of unpaid labor becomes so pernicious because you are working, but it's being assigned no value. Correct. And like you said, that it should just be limitless like sand because he brings in the actual money. Correct. And that's because that is a, became a signifier for people of, of currency instead of communication. Currency became the signifier of how they set up their gender roles, not communication. Currency, not communication. I've actually never said it that way, but I like that. And we could talk about that more. Then finally, the two most insidious ones, why I, was, why I had my Kaiser Soze breakdown, another <laughs> breakdown. I cry a lot over this issue in, um, in, in this man's office was because the way that you asked me about the, the issues that um, were, were my, my learnings. Like, when did I have that learning? When did I have that aha moment for myself? It was in this man's office. We had a million credentials. And I was there to ask him about multitasking because I literally couldn't figure it out. There is no good literature, body of literature about whether women are better multitaskers than men. But that besides the money argument and the flexibility argument, I'm a better multitasker. I'm wired differently for care. My partner is better at focusing on one task at a time wasn't the most common C-I-Y-O-O -O statement I had heard. Right, because it becomes a self-fulfilling self prophecy. We just get better at it because we force it. ourselves to do it. Correct. And then somehow we take pride in it. Like, like people were taking pride in making like quinoa Elsa pancakes for the freaking <laughs> fucking picnic, you know, like what? And so this man said to me when I said, are women better multitaskers? So obviously the answer, his on the record answer was no. No, there's no gendered difference in the brain. I'm here to tell you that about our multitasking abilities. In fact, it's bad for everyone. But what he said off the record, Laura, was, oh, that's what you're trying. That's why you're here. You're trying to debunk that. He's like, well, imagine Eve, right? We men could convince you women that you're better at wiping asses and doing dishes. How great for my tenure and my golf game. Like he was sort of, obviously he was being facetious, but he was saying, I'm not sure I want you to debunk this. 
Right, because um, then we're going to undermine a system that works for yes, a lot of people. Yes. And he's like, what are you doing? Like, I, I like the fact that my wife takes pride in the quinoa pancakes. Like, I'm good <laughs> with that. And so that was when I broke down that, oh, my God, I've been saying to myself, it's on me because I'm better at it. I'm faster at it. I take pride in this. And again, it's not that I don't take, we shouldn't all take pride in the care. And if I'd love to make those pancakes because it was something that meant something to me, sure. Right, but, but if it's performative because performative. you feel obligated, yes. Yes. that's not serving anybody. Correct. And that was, so that was the day. And then finally, the last CIYO message I was circling a lot in my book and why this fair play became about values, especially the value of time is um, in the time it takes me to tell him, her, they, what to do, I should do it myself. Right. And that is also its own recipe for a problem. So right before the break, we were talking about both those uh, pernicious, um, performative aspects of motherhood and womanhood, um, as well as this concept that, um, you know, this, it's brilliant insight that men's time is like diamonds, ours is like sand, and that we're taking responsibility for everything. And it's too much to handle. In your book, part of what you talk about, aside from this um, deceptively engaging mechanism of a card game to sort out how we navigate things together, this concept of when we do need to ask for help, when we are going to share the load around the house, um, this concept of conceive, plan, execute. And the question of whether like I did for much of my marriage, I conceived it, I planned it, I executed, but sometimes I'd be like, can't you just get this done? I've set this all up, can't you go do this? Not realizing that's actually a recipe for disaster. So talk to me about why and what the answer is. And by the way, it comes up every single day, even today, <laughs> Seth and I are, are, are seasoned fair players and um, his parents are coming over and I had, uh, I took on the card of ordering dinner and I said to him, well, can you remind me at four? And he's like, okay, that's completely opposite of fair play. Right. So um, <laughs> threw it back at you. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, so even on a daily basis, but what, so what was the insight, the core insight? So I had two core insights. Insight one was the consciousness raising insight about, like I said, these toxic time messages we give ourselves that we, we have to recognize that time is time that we just get 24 hours in a day. And my revolution, the revolution I want uh, to, why I, I'm an activist in this space, my, my little carve out is to have women come along with me to, be, to believe that they, they have a permission to be unavailable, to believe that they have as much time choice over how they use their days as their partners. So I hope you all come along this journey with me. And then the next revelation was a more practical one, which people can actually use starting today, um, if you're listening. And that's this idea of what, when I centered this conversation for me, so other people are gender studies experts or they, they are you know, ec um, economists. For me, doing organizational management work, right? Working with families and their family foundations and family businesses. What I realized I could add to this conversation was how would life look different if we treated our homes as our most important organization? And I realized that we would not be taking the dog out when it's about to take a piss on the rug, right? We would not be setting the table when we're hangry and we're cranky. We would be customizing our defaults. We would be um, 
as in the workplace, we would be setting what the workplace calls work streams or a directly responsible individual where I come in, Laura, I know if I work for you, right? And I came in and said, hey, Laura, um, what should I be doing today? I think I'll just wait here to tell me what to do. Like, I know I would not be working for you. I just know it. You know, <laughs> no, I, instead I we'd be talking about what are our shared goals? How are we going to achieve them together? How exactly. would you like to plan this? And let me know if you need help as you think about executing it. That's it. So you just got fair play in a nutshell. That's it. That was it. It was hearing leaders say the how they would talk to people on their team that got me to fair play. And the, the real insight came from the organizational management concepts. And a lot of it does come out of positive organizational scholarship, right? And this is a lot of this is not <laughs> new. Um, people talk about intrinsic motivation and psychological safety. But what it came for me was trying to merge all these concepts in one question, which was how did mustard get in your refrigerator? <laughs> Tell me more. <laughs> it was such a great question, Laura, because condiments translate across countries. Yes. So, um, and actually I was surprised a lot of other countries use mustard um, in different types of ways, but, but all, we could, I could find a condiment depending on if I was talking, you know, to people, to family structures in India or Japan or America. Mustard was, mustard was my American one and UK, but the, or Australia too. But that, that idea of how did this condiment get in your refrigerator? So often for, again, I centered hetero cisgender couples. And I want to talk about that. Not because I don't think the solution is equally important for, um, for non-binary, for LGBTQIA families. It is. But the reason why we have to center the pro problem around white hetero cisgender men is because 70% of those men live in the most traditional family structure in the 1% imaginable. They have stay-at-home wives. And so why I centered those men is because they're the ones making our decisions in government mm -hmm. and workplace. And if they don't have empathy for care, we're not gonna move the needle. So of course I wanna move us to a bigger, inclusive, more gender neutral pronouns or using the pronouns that people care about. But I am talking a lot of him and her here because that's where the problem is. I want to spend a moment on this because I think it's really important. I appreciate that you're noting that this kind of imbalance can happen in any family structure, regardless of gender identity and sexuality. However, there's something really potent, if I'm understanding you, in connecting what we learn at home as a tool for what can change in the workplace and recognizing that in that kind of performative, wifely parenting role, the men who are part of those partnerships are the same men who are running organizations, which are the other yeah. places where these roles need to change. Am I getting it? Yes, you got it 1000% right. Um, I can tell why you are an academic and also <laughs> are able to distill concepts. That's exactly right, 1000% right. It is the structures that are in the home that we've never talked about that actually I believe are the most important structures for how um, psychologically safe and how inclusive workplaces will be. How you, how you, the leadership in your home structure. And so that's why centering white men who live in these very traditional family structures who do literally, Laura, sometimes I would, I would talk to, I mean, I interviewed many hetero cisgender white men in leadership who had literally no idea what I was talking about. Like had literally no idea about anything I was talking about. Like when I would say, do you feel guilt and shame if you're stuck, you know, on a, on a work trip? 
um, and you're fogged in an SFO. You said you'd, you'd come home uh, and put your kids to bed. Laura, I, I thought they'd be like, no, or whatever. I did not understand that so many of these men would not understand the question. It's like you were saying to them, how do you use your, you know, third year or something like they just could not relate whereas that kind of guilt and shame has been part of every single day of my work life from the day my daughter was born for 13 years that's how I live my life um I mean not now I've burnt it and we can talk about some strategies for guilt and shame where I've literally burnt it and reframed it but um but that idea that there was no understanding and so this is what I couldn't even relate to it yeah they would say well you mean guilty because um you know, my wife's going to be mad at me. And I'm like, no, no. Do you feel guilt and shame? Like, do you just feel guilt and shame? Because you, you weren't like, it's, we, we were talking about this the other day, that perpetual feeling that you're always in the wrong place. Correct. And it was, and so that type of empathy of, of feeling like the pull to want to take your child to the pediatrician's office or not being there for their play, um, for uh, understanding how important it is to put the garbage liner back in. Because some, I will say that male leaders were evolving on fatherhood, but I didn't see housework as an evolution at all. Zero. Zero evolution from the 1960s in my in my research um, in terms of the, the value of putting the garbage liner back in, the value <laughs> of cleaning toilets, the value of ordering enough masks or or um, tissue. So, so why is this all important? It's important because that dynamic came up in my question, the the mustard question. Okay. And it was so clear because what I would hear Laura was from amazing women, again, who identified from working class all the way up to, uh, CEOs was, um, yeah, well, mustard is my refrigerator because, well, my, I guess, because my second son, Johnny, likes French's yellow mustard and only, he, he won't eat his protein unless he has that mustard to dip it in. And so Laura, what I got was, oh, I know that phase. That's conception. That's a conception phase. And then I would hear, well, and then I get stakeholder buy-in from everybody in my household. Obviously, I didn't say it like that, but I get stakeholder buy-in for what we need for the grocery list. And I put it all together on the grocery list and I monitor that mustard for when it's running low. And I'd say, oh shit, I know that phase. That's planning. That is planning. And then my husband goes to the store and he, um, to get the yellow mustard and the motherfucker brings home spicy Dijon every fucking time. (laughs) And Eve, you want me to trust him with my living will? You want me to divide up the division of labor? The dude can't even bring home the right type of mustard. So no. And then that's it. Yeah, that mustard is the symbol, like the glue stick, like the blueberries, but it's the symbol there of not thinking about the big picture and not engaging with the big picture and connecting the deep, connect, making the connection between the little pixels and the way they comprise to make up the big picture. Uh, 100%. And the big, can I tell you what the big picture is? The big picture is an, or, any tor- type of organizational failure, because I know because I'm hired Typically, I don't get always hired when things are going great, right? I get hired when things are not working well. And that is accountability and trust. Do you have a, do you feel with your partner in your home that you have, there is accountability and trust, which means that if, if you, they say, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, you know, I'm taking out the garbage every day. Does it go out every day? If they say, I got it, I'm in charge of the estate plan. Does the will get executed and notarized? 
And if you don't, if you lose accountability and trust, Laura, it's over. There's nothing left on the other side. And And that, and that was a systems failure I saw because what happens is the more you break up the conception and planning and the execution in an organization, the less likely you will get to a place of accountability and trust. And that was the core insight of fair play. That if, you, if I can promote, if I can create a card game, a gamified system as a, a metaphor to say, when you own something in the home, whether it's the watching card for an hour or garbage for the rest of your life, you do that with full conception, planning and execution. That simple concept, the ownership mindset, if you do it, is revolutionary. It changed my life. I'm now married, as Esther Perel said, to Seth Rodsky, but he's a different man. I'm married to a different man, even though he's the same man. Um, <laughs> because that simple concept of a conception, planning, execution, it changed our life. It changed our whole marriage. So Eve, part of what you're talking about in that accountability and trust related to conception, planning, and execution, whether it's about putting mustard in the fridge or we relate it to workplace norms. I, I'm feeling like there's an answer to another kind of perennial issue that comes up, which is why do I have to do it your way? Why can't I do it my way? Can't you just lower your standards? But it sounds like what this does is you talked about stakeholders before, the family or the stakeholders. You yes. remain a stakeholder, but you each take responsibility for factoring in stakeholder concerns in how you conceive, plan, and execute. You're amazing, Laura. Really, honestly, <laughs> I, I've actually never heard anybody sort of describe the concepts in fair play with such precision, um, real honestly. And I think, and I thank you for it because it means that you actually read the book and you're an amazing interviewer. Um, And you also obviously have a ton of expertise of your own, which is very important. It's also that these concepts are really important, whether we're looking at how do we make our own home lives sustainable, be happier, have stronger relationships, but also as we start to wind this out and think about what does this mean in our organizations? What does it mean in our society? When, like I was teeing up in the beginning, we have got all these systemic problems. And if we start with this idea that men's time is diamonds, women's time is sand, which means it's worthless yet ubiquitous, um, we also have a care crisis that's largely falling on women's shoulders. Is there a way we can connect the dots between these things and creating some bigger systemic solutions? It's a great question. And and this is the one that I'm, I'm, I'm in now. Um, and I hope all of your listeners will come to care-force.org soon because, and Laura, I need you in the, in our Slack, um, because we have now 190 experts, Stu's in there now, um, since, since April, when we saw that the workforce was bleeding women, um, especially women of color, 190 of us have gotten together in the Slack who've devoted their lives to um, what I call fair pay, fair play, or fair day. That, that. That's sort of how I center it. I mean, obviously other people have their own centering. My, my centering is their pay for a day. Let's just talk about that a little bit because fair play became a love letter to men, exactly for what you said before, Laura, and that um, a lot of these concepts are about stakeholder buy-in mm-hmm. and the way things have worked. So many men said to me, I have no, didn't say it this way. They said, I can't get anything right. But the way, what I heard as an organizational management specialist was there's no uh, psychological safety. Right. Right. You don't know your role. If you don't know right, your like, role, 
you're screwed in any organization. Right. And And like you said, where are we complicit in our own oppression? If we're telling our partners, we don't trust them, they're not good enough. um, Then how will they engage wholeheartedly and well? Correct. And and, and look, yes, you're going to have those incidents. There was one woman who said, you know, she really, she asked her partner to put away the pizza and she was like, this should have been an aluminum foil. I didn't expect a huge giant 12 inch pizza box to be like knocking over stuff in my refrigerator. I get that. Um, but, but it becomes bigger. It becomes carrying through your own mistakes, right? Allowing somebody to have the same freedom you would if they were a stakeholder at your table um, to, to make their own mistakes, to have their own opinions. And that's what I realized why fair play was different. Because because of those values we talked about, aligning on the values, not just of time, but on how we look at garbage and how we look at dishes and things that actually really matter more than the values you took on your wedding day. When you get alignment there, you get buy-in. And so without stakeholder buy-in around the table, if we all just like so many, so many men had versions of, I didn't, I'm getting screamed at for not moving the elf on the shelf. Like, I don't even know what the freaking elf on the shelf is. Um, why I'm, I'm here creating a diorama for this elf. Like, you know, there's just not a lot of buy-in. Like, why do you, why are you doing elf on the shelf? Sit back and think about, is that performative parenting? Is that about nostalgia? Is that because you were, um, you know, a child who didn't have resources growing up. So you want to have the best holidays for your kids. Those stories, the why behind what you're doing, you have to tell your partner because those why they don't know those stories about you. And so- and if yeah, you investigate them, and this is where like a nod to, to um, who wrote Drop the Ball? Tiffany. Oh, t- Tiffany Dufu. Dufu. Yes. 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 It's that combination of if you identify why you're doing it and what's driving you, you can then either free yourself from it and say, you know what? That's not important. We're not going to invest in it. Or, okay, I get why it's important to you and exactly. I will honor it because it's important to you. Absolutely. And that, I, Tiffany, I love your work. And I think it's so important to recognize that. And what's so beautiful, she got to tell her own personal story too about it is hard. It is hard in a heterosexual marriage to get, because you have, you know, years and years of conditioning. And that's why I think the activism, what you were asking before about what's the movement that people can join. To me, um, what is my moonshot, Laura, besides, you know, women having time choice over their, their lives? Um, it, it, because I ultimately believe that will lead to women more in their full power in the workplace. Um, the other thing is a, a very simple statement, which is that I have um, on my, I like Kanbans or whatever, Kanbans. I have, uh, I've always had a post-it in my Kanban Trello on the wall that says, an hour holding your child's hand at the pediatrician's office is just as valuable as an hour in the boardroom. Because that's my moonshot. Mm-hmm. If we really believe that, we're going to have what Anne-Marie Slaughter calls a six-hour workday. Right. If we truly believe that, we're going to have fair pay, fair play, and fair day. So these are, the, these are the buckets I put it in. Obviously, other people use their own buckets. But for me, fair play is we have to get men, even if they're the 70% who have stay-at-home wives, to believe that parenting out loud is important. Right. That uh, caregiving out loud is important. Um, whether it's you're not, you know, if you're not a father that, you know, taking your, your dad to get to, to Dodger stadium, to get the Alzheimer's shot, you tell your employees that you're doing that you're leaving it too. Um, you, you engage in a six hour work day. Um, you have predictability and flexibility so that people are not feeling they have to be on zooms, you know, for, for at all hours, right? Those, those are, that's fair play. Fair day is this idea about, um, how you, 
um, as we said, this not only the six hour work week, but how you think about your employees day, right? Do you believe in boundaries for the people who work for you? Right. Um, do corporations believe in boundaries? Because I'm telling you, Laura, one of the questions I asked for fun as an icebreaker over the past year was the weirdest place you've taken a Zoom. And Laura, on, on, we should write an article together because it is, talk about work-life integration. It was horrible. I had men telling me they were taking Zooms um, on the operating table. Um, I, uh, for, for a kidney issue, I had a man telling some kidney stones taking Zooms. A woman telling me she was on a horse because she was in some, on like a farm with her kids for one day she had off and she ended up being on horseback riding on a Zoom call, right? So, th so that fair day is, do we, go, do we believe that whole people are better workers. Right. And finally, and so, yes. And then I'll and just so, give you the last one and we'll go into it. The fair yeah. pay is how pay equity is informed by all these things. Right. So it, at the same time that we need to work from the outside in within our own relationships, our own self-concept and the way that we frame the things that we think of as essential or expected of us, work with our partners. Um, it's within our organizations where um, the pay, the way that our modern work life is structured is that employees are your limitless resource and you own them. And that that does, it's not sustainable for anybody. And it certainly doesn't encourage high performance, even if it encourages high returns in a short term basis. Am I Correct. connecting the dots? Yes, that's it. Because I mean, I think that's burnout, right? I mean, I think that's ultimately what burnout stems from. It stems from a lack of boundaries. But the problem is that people are talking about boundaries too small, Laura. They're not talking about boundary, boundaries as activists. And if you're an activist thinking about boundaries, it looks way different than if you're um, you know, a manager thinking about boundaries. And like I said, for me, it's valuing women's time. It's the fair pay. Um, do, do, not, do not do the of counsel and do not do the partnership thing. Do not extract blood for flexibility. Do not penalize women for, for being a mother, right? Those barriers, that's the number one issue we're, we're hitting on in pay equity. We cannot get past the motherhood penalty. Mm -hmm. um, we, women lose five to 10% of their wages for every child they bring into the world. Um, so all of those issues will, will, will work. The beauty is if you're interested in pay equity, it's informed by fair, the fair pay, fair play. If you're interested in fair play, getting having men to do more in the home, it's going to inform pay equity. If you're interested in workplaces that are more flexible and predictable, it's going to inform um, uh, in men doing more household and childcare and labor because you'll have paternity leave policies. You'll have um, backup childcare. You'll have policies that make it um, okay to center care in your workplaces. And to me, ultimately that will, that will allow women to step into their full power at work which ultimately is what Laura, you um, devote your your life to, and I think it's very, very, very important. I love the way that you're bringing this all together. We only have a couple minutes left. Um, if people want to get involved and people want to learn more, how can they do this? And what are the questions that you have? Okay, I would like to ask you one quick question, and sure. then I will tell people where they can find me. Is, um, is somebody who does this for a living who um, centers their life around women at work. Um, how did it feel to you to see the statistics of the millions of women um, being forced out of the workforce this year? Um, it broke my heart and it scared me. 
um, because it meant a lot of things were going wrong all at the same time, that years of progress were being lost because those women were now going to lose the cumulative pay, social security benefits, retirement benefits, job security. They might not make it back into the workforce. And then a ripple effect that we lose them. We lose their talent in the workforce and their well-being suffers, their kids' well-being suffers. It, it's a systemic problem. It's not a momentary piece of data. And it said to me that a lot is still wrong. Yeah. Well, thank you for using your voice to make it right. <laughs> We're doing our best, Eve. So if people want to join on board with you, read your stuff, get involved, help where they can, where should they look? Well, if you're looking at your own life, you're ready to play fair. Um, you could go to Fair Play Life. Um, that It's a website. It has a lot of free resources. It has all the cards and the actual breakdown of what conception planning and execution means for each one. It's a really fun exercise to do with your kids because your kid may not know what it means to plan their birthday party. So you can look at each step together and ask them where they want to get involved um, um, because that's how to be an adult, right? To, to have a <laughs> right. mindset of your own life. Um, and also I would say, just follow me at Eve Rodsky on Instagram or fair and also fair play life because fair play life is the more um, it's just devoted to, to unpaid labor and things around it. But mine is a more ragey, um, place you can find the latest statistics and studies. <laughs> Eve, thank you so much for all you're doing and for joining us today. It is an absolute delight. And thank you all for listening. If you have a question, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Many thanks to my producer, Patty Hall, my sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I'm Laura Zarrow, and you've been listening to Women at Work on SiriusXM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Take care of each other, people, and make time to take care of yourselves. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.